I'm going to be 49 in May, I've had well over 500 moles cut out of my skin. It's quite rare. He said, I'm probably one in a billion. Last week, I spoke to Chris Foreman. And during our conversation, he alluded to the person who inspires him most, the love of his life, his wife, Nicole. When I first met Chris at the end of January this year, we had a lovely encounter where he works at the Banded Goose in Kingsville, Ontario. During our super engaging conversation, I asked him what he was most proud of. Without skipping a beat, he said his wife. This obviously intrigued me, especially to find out that she's overcome various forms of cancer and is currently battling multiple myeloma. Welcome to The Safe Haven, a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life. I sat down with Chris and Nicole in their home in Leamington, Ontario at the end of February this year. I had very different conversations with each one of them. When I asked Nicole how this all started, she began her powerful story of health, wellness, love, and resilience. Well, uh, the first time I guess I was aware that there was maybe an issue with cancer, I had a couple of moles on my body that were in places like on my waist. One of them was getting irritated with my pants. So my mom was very conscious of my dad had moles from head to toe, just covered in them. And back then, people didn't get their skin checked for skin cancer. It wasn't, we didn't have the awareness that we have now. Mm-hmm. So my mom, I think, had always had a concern for my dad's changing skin, but nothing was ever done about it. But when I was 11, I had the first two moles removed, and that started a process because the doctor was concerned that one of them, it wasn't melanoma, but it was turning, you know, from a regular mole into the first level of cancer. So my mom felt like, okay, this is, I was right, we should be having your skin checked. And it became, that was now my regular routine. From that first two moles, I went regularly, like every three months, And had moles removed because we noticed I kept getting more and they kept changing. And then my dad passed away from a brain tumor. At I was about fourteen, so he was only thirty-three years old. And then my, you know, my family was now very hypersensitive, thinking like, "You look just like your dad. You've got moles from head to toe. Maybe he had skin cancer that metastasized to a brain tumor." Mm. But nobody put that together at the time, so it became kind of a you know, this is your life now. You've got to be really diligent about getting your skin checked. And in the process of, you know, starting at 11 years old, I'm going to be 49 in May, I've had well over 500 moles cut out of my skin. And then I've had hundreds lasered by a doctor in Alberta who was using that technique. They don't do that anymore because they're not sure that they're getting the whole piece that they want to get rid of. So we don't do that. But It's just, you know, when you say that, people kind of get a (laughs) glaze, like, Mm -hmm. how do you comprehend having 500 moles, you know, cut out of your body over a lifetime? And most dermatologists I've met will say, and I met one when I moved here, he said, Nicole, I don't believe that 
this could be, they're not, they, those could not have been melanomas. And I said, well, there's a lab report that <laughs> says they are. I didn't make it up. Yeah. And you get that report soon from my doctor. Mm-hmm. Well, when I saw him the next time, he said, okay, because <laughs> he had referred me to a surgeon that's now mm-hmm. removing my moles here in Windsor. And they're definitely, I would say like I get three or four done every time, every three months, mm-hmm. and at least one, and sometimes all of them are melanoma. So now he's like, oh my I gosh, believe. He believes you. Yeah. So it, it's quite rare. He said, I'm probably one in a billion people that they've ever seen that has this much melanoma and survives. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still alive. A lot yeah. of people get one, and if it metastasizes to the wrong place, you can be gone. So I'm a freak of nature from the doctor's yeah. point of view. That, And I thank my mom for at a time when doctors were not encouraging you to get your skin checked like they do now, she took me because she was, you know, concerned. And, you know, when you have a little daughter and you're watching them get the freezing and, you know, it's not the most major surgery or anything, but it's a lot when it's every three months or, every, you know, sometimes it would be every six months. And I'm really glad that my mom didn't get lenient, you know, for the, like, I felt like she was kind of tough on me. She wasn't a real warm and fuzzy kind of mom, but I'm really grateful for that because it made me tougher to go through it, you know, Mm -hmm. because you have to, if you don't, if you're not uh, diligent about it, it can be your life, right? Absolutely. So that was my (laughs) first health challenge Mm -hmm. that showed up at the age of 11. And then around the time um, my dad passed away, I had a a lump show up on my toe and uh, a doctor removed it, a plastic surgeon. And of course, being a plastic surgeon, his concern was try and get it all, but also try and leave the toe as, as aesthetically pleasing as you could, right? So he didn't really get it all and it grew back right out of the incision it looked like something from the movie alien (laughs) it was really bizarre so this was I was 14 years old in junior high Um, nobody you know nobody sees the surgery it's when you go back to school you're just wearing shoes so nobody knows anything happened Mm -hmm. but you you get this surgery done and then this thing starts growing out of the incision and it bleeds all the time it's quite like <laughs> traumatic for a 14 yeah, year old but yet in the same breath life goes on and you just go to school and you, you do what you do and at that point when it grew back though my family got so concerned having lost my dad they were like it must be cancer so my grandmother took me to a um like an all-natural clinic in the States for treating cancer. And we did some dramatic things. They have a thing called a poultice that they put on it, and it's it feels like acid on your oh. toe. You can't have anything for pain because the belief is everything should be natural, nothing toxic. Mm-hmm. So for 24 to 48 hours, you just put up with this poultice, and it feels like something is like eating your toe so it was quite uncomfortable (laughs) but the second day they put clay on it and it's amazing the clay dries and then the doctor pulls on it and the tumor is attached to the clay it's like (laughs) again you have to witness it to believe it yeah so we were all like ah Mm -hmm. you know had this moment of like I'm cured but unfortunately it didn't get it all either so it grew back again right out of the incision so the resolution was I went back to the plastic surgeon and he said, I just have to be more aggressive and get it all. So um, 
And before we did that, one other doctor said, oh, I could get rid of it. I'll just remove your whole toe. Mm. <laughs> and that wasn't that exciting to me. So no. the other surgeon said, "Let me give me another shot. And so we got that surgery was successful. And so now my toe just has a big gaping space there. But I didn't lose my toe so I can walk normally. I have full function of my foot. So that was a beginning of another health situation. And at the time, they didn't really know what that was. Now there's a name for it. And I've had many, they're called desmoid tumors. And they're not cancerous and they're not life-threatening, but they can be very aggressive. Once they get past, like they start off about a pea side, this is when I tend to notice them. And it just, you notice it because you'll feel a little bit of pain. And um, so I've gotten them kind of like under my underarm, in my abdomen, in my ear I had one, which is a weird place. And as long as you catch them early, then they're easy to remove. But I've had a few that just things happened in life. Maybe I was going through other treatments for other things Mm -hmm. and we couldn't do the surgeries. So right now I have one on my arm that is now probably, I would say, the size of half an avocado Mm -hmm. if you slapped it on the side of my arm. And unfortunately, it's grown so big, it's grown into the muscles so that no doctor will... Um, agree to remove it because they say they would have to take too much muscle and my arm would just be useless. So at least I can move my arm and use it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Is there pain right now? There yeah, is, eh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is pain. Um, I can tolerate it. It comes and goes. I have, like right now, sitting here, it's not bothering me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But in a half an hour, I might get like a lightning feeling of like a lightning bolt of pain and then it goes away right and because of the size of it are you feeling it from shoulder to Mm -hmm. elbow or your entire arm actually yes right to my elbow even down the front of my forearm sometimes Mm -hmm. and then it goes up into my shoulder Mm -hmm. yeah and there's nerves that are affected so I think that's what I'm feeling is nerve pain Mm -hmm. drawing down there I have a question about your the desmoid tumors as well is if those are able to be kind of it sounds like anywhere yeah, right anywhere can they be deep inside your body as well or are they generally more surface level usually I find them on the surface now there was one um, I had a tumor in my abdomen that you could feel and then we were doing a CT scan to you know see how big it is and the mm-hmm. doctor always does that before surgery they found one in my kidney and now that one was Something was different about it. It, They said it wasn't cancer when they found it, but they were pretty certain that that one was a little different. It was more aggressive. Mm -hmm. And if they hadn't caught it, that could have also been like lethal. So they found that in my kidney and I got that removed. And I'm lucky because we don't know what that would have done. Yeah, so bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, really. Okay, so after you're 14, you're 14 years old, you've had this issue with your toe. And then it's essentially fixed. Like right. That one has never come back. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So what was next after that? So after that, between, so just to recap, between the ages of, say, 15 and 35, I had about eight different tumors that we re- removed. And then for, so up until um, into my 40s, that's really what I was dealing with regularly. Just get your skin checked get your moles removed and if there's a new lump I kind of they don't grow super fast so I don't necessarily do anything the moment I have one right now I'm not doing anything because I know it's tiny um 
So we just watch and then book an appointment to get those done. But what really surprised me, the third challenge that I did not expect, and I think the other two have, we've been, I've been dealing with them from such a young age, I just accepted that this is my life. Mm-hmm. And if I'm vigilant, it's not going to take my life, you know. But um, I'm trying to remember what age I would have been in 2014. In my 40s, can you do the math? <laughs> um, I, my family doctor was v- a wonderful man, very kind and very on the ball. He said, I noticed your hemoglobin's going down. He's like, do you feel low energy or any change to how you feel? And I said, no, I feel just like myself. And he's like, well, your hemoglobin, I'm, it's something's not right. I'm. Here's what I think. He said, I think it could be a sign of a cancer called multiple myeloma. And I just was like, and he told me what that was. Multiple myeloma is a cancer of the blood plasma, mainly in the bone marrow. And I mean, nobody in my family has had that. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, okay, because my hemoglobin's a little low. Are you kidding me? No, this isn't, this isn't true. I totally resisted what he said. So he wanted me to get it checked. And I was like, no, I feel fine. And I resisted getting the, the test that would tell me whether or not I had it. So when I went back to him for some other usual checkup thing, again, he was pressing me like, now it's lower again. And I said, I still feel fine. He's like, I just, you know, we could just do this test and then we'll know. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I'll do it then. So he sent me to a doctor who was unfortunately had a terrible bedside manner, was arrogant, tried to scare me just totally pushed me away mm-hmm. and so I didn't go for the test oh no <laughs> that put me I was like no I'm not doing it with this guy and then you know th- these things all take time you end mm-hmm. up going back to your doctor and then he was like please I'll, I'll, I've got another doctor I can send you to he's lovely so again I said okay I'll do it but that took like I probably waited another six months right right while this multiple myeloma is progressing because um, finally, I meet this wonderful oncologist who was so kind and so just, I felt like he heard me and mm. understood how I felt. Mm. And he assured me, I was really scared of getting the bone marrow. It's called a bone marrow aspiration. It's a needle like Ooh. inches long that goes through your hip into your hip bone. And it sounded awful mm-hmm. to me. And it's funny, I've had a bazillion needles my life, right? But <laughs> just getting one into mm-hmm. my bone was too freaky for mm-hmm. me to, I was like, no, I don't want to do it. But this doctor convinced me, he said, it's really not even that much pain. You'll just feel more like a pulling. Mm-hmm. And he was right. So I had nothing to be scared of, but my own things I imagined. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness this doctor was so kind and so just won me over because he came back and he said yes I can confirm you have multiple myeloma and you know you always remember that day because that's a it's a cancer with no cure so it's like you're you've just been handed this news like you're now living with something that it just feels more final than the other things I've dealt with the other things I'm like I just got to keep having little surgeries and life goes on. Mm-hmm. But that one really shocked me. <laughs> I yeah. had a hard time because I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anyone with it. I think I felt like the skin cancer was very, I sort of expected it mm-hmm. because my mom had talked about my dad's moles for mm-hmm. so long. 
Well, you'd also dealt with it from being from being a child, right? Now I'm in my 40s, so I sort of feel like I had my plan. Like, okay, yeah, I'm going to deal with skin cancer my whole life, but it's Mm -hmm. never going to kill me because I'm always going to just keep cutting them out, and Mm -hmm. we'll work. You know, we'll just deal with it that way. This threw us, or for me, anyways, for a loop. I don't know. I can't speak for Chris, but I mean, I can remember getting that news with him in the hospital, and you know, you hug and shed some tears and just like your whole life shifts like mm-hmm. now plans that you have like we just have to think like what are we going to do now mm-hmm. so um that started that was 2014 um I was confirmed with the diagnosis but <laughs> I did something else that could have been maybe foolish is I wasn't ready like the doctor said I want to start you on chemotherapy this week. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have any symptoms yet. Other than my hemoglobin is low, I feel great. I have great energy. I'm not sick. And he um, said, I can't make you do it, but I'm telling you, multiple myeloma is there. And it, when it grows, what happens is you will start to have trouble breathing when you start, the cancer crowds out the cells in the bone marrow, and that prevents your blood from getting hemoglobin. So you got you you have trouble getting enough oxygen. You feel like you can't get an, enough air. And he said, and your the cancer crowds out the the bones. Um, our bones are always rebuilding themselves with calcium, mm-hmm. and this interrupts that. So all your bones do. Your bones are actually breaking themselves down and rebuilding. So this cancer interrupts that process. Where now all the bones do is break down, and the cancer fills in where it should be new bone filling and you get lesions which are holes in your bone you could just when it's progressed let's say you bump your elbow on a wall your bone will just break so that's how it could be your spine you don't know which bone is gonna it could be all over so even though he said that like that's what's gonna happen if when this progresses you know if we don't treat it that's where you will go And I was like, well, give me time to try some natural things because in my mind, I'd seen in movies, chemotherapy just makes you sick Mm -hmm, and throw mm -hmm, up. For sure. And uh, so I tried for a whole year um, some natural therapies and nothing really, the cancer still kept progressing. May I ask at what rate it would progress? Like, I mean, if, if you had never heard of it and you're quite knowledgeable when it comes to different kinds of cancers as well, is at what rate? does it progress and what essentially would that look like i mean internally i guess it's it's really yeah. doing some damage but and and how are you able to continue testing that so he said when i told him my plan i said let me try some natural things first he said well i will tell you my prediction is or your prognosis is to not treat this at all probably in about a year is when you will have bones breaking and you won't feel like you're getting, you you have trouble breathing and then you will not feel like you don't have this cancer, like you'll know it. Okay. And um, so for, that was in September of 2014, December of 2015, um, I just rolled over. I was, I was having symptoms. I was getting night sweats. I wasn't sleeping very good. And so I was frustrated one night, not sleeping well. So I rolled over in a huff, kind of like frustrated. And I felt this 
it was this side, um, this pain. It felt like I pulled a muscle, and I thought, oh, darn it. I guess I was just kind of rough. So for a few days, I, I couldn't put my hand all the way up. It was so sore, and it wasn't getting better. So I went to the doctor, and they said, it's not a muscle. You have a bone lesion from multiple myeloma. You have a break in your clavicle. So when I just rolled over, my clavicle broke. Like, that's how weak the bones can mm-hmm. get. And I thought, that scared me because I yeah. thought, is there one in my spine that tomorrow I roll over and my spine breaks? Well, that's breaks. it. And you think of just the most simplistic things like walking, right? right. Or going up and down the stairs or picking up groceries, driving a car, yeah. all of these things that actually take some yeah. sort of coordination and movement. Now, at that time uh, that the bone broke, then what started happening simultaneously is like we lived in an apartment at the time and we were at the end of the hall, just walking from that door to the halfway down the hallway to the elevator. I felt out of breath, which is so not me. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, you can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. So, of course, um, when my oncologist saw the bone broke and I, he could tell from my levels, he's like, Nicole, I'm telling you, if you don't do chemotherapy today, you will be gone in two weeks. That is so confronting. I was, and he was right about the year. I mean, I had a little longer, right? So I'm starting to like believe in that mm-hmm. uh, maybe I should be listening to mm-hmm. to his advice. So of course, Chris and I talked about it and said, "Yeah, this is." We were resistant to this therapy before, but we got to try. I mean, I don't want to be gone in two weeks. So, and what was amazing to me is um, the chemotherapy they put you on for that is called induction. You do it for four months. And it's to prepare you for high-dose chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant that happens a month later. So what was amazing to me is um, the, the first month of being on chemotherapy, I felt better. Wow. I wasn't sick. I was feeling better and saw improvement every day. So I was like a believer and, and not saying that I still feel that what we, how we treat cancer today at some point, we're going to look back and go, wow, that was archaic because it's so toxic, some of the medications. But I also am a believer in that they can really work and, and cure cancer. I just think we're going to move forward to some newer, less toxic things, which is, I'll tell you more about where, what I'm doing today. But um, yeah, chemotherapy saved my life. <laughs> so, that, and that, so that, just time check, that was at the end of uh, 2014. Or 2016 was the treatment. Okay. Yeah. So 2014 was the diagnosis. That's when I got Got diagnosed. Got it. Okay. So then 2016 was now you have... Having treatment. Okay. So really, I waited two years being diagnosed. Like, that's unheard of. Most people in your doctor says, get on chemotherapy. They do do what the doctor says. So I'm kind of a rebel, I guess. (laughs) Now, at that point then too, you know, treatment's done. You've been checked. Is this something that you're still dealing with? Or it's forever? So multiple myeloma... um, as of today that I know of, does not have a cure. So when you get your treatment, they tell you you the I, the goal is remission. But it's not that doctor, um, my oncologist said, it's not will it come back, it's when. Okay. So he goes, I want you to know that. But some people have had treatment and have lived for 20 years and they're still going. Other people get three years and they... There is a second treatment you can do. There's other alternatives. So sometimes the second treatment gives you more time, Mm -hmm. but sometimes people don't get, you know, and it depends on your age too, whether you can 
handle the treatments, you know, as well. That was something I had going from, for me. Most people with multiple myeloma are more in their 60s and 70s when they get diagnosed. Okay. I'm kind of on the younger side for this mm-hmm. kind of cancer. So I've had, uh, I've been in remission and, um, you know, you hope it lasts as long as possible mm-hmm. and I've been feeling great. And then what happened was last December... No, last, a year ago, January, so January 2019, I Mm -hmm. had a surgery, but it was actually a year ago, so 2018, I had just a routine mole above my lip um, removed, and I mean, I get moles removed all the time, and the doctor said, I I got it all, Um, the pathology came back, they got it all, so we were just, you know, not thinking anything different than all the hundreds of moles we've done, but I... A few months after it was removed, I started to feel um, a sore lump in my throat. And it would just come up at night, it seemed. So I wasn't really noticing it because it wasn't happening all day. But then eventually it got bigger and I could actually start to feel this pea-sized lump right under my jawline. And so I went to the doctor and I thought, oh, it's probably one of these desmoid tumors. That's how they actually Mm -hmm. feel. And he said, I think it might be a, a lymph node. And it's possible cancer is metastasized, but I'd have to do a like a biopsy. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. So we did the biopsy, and yes, it was a squamous cell carcinoma. That's what this was above my lip. So it most likely had metastasized to the lymph nodes, which is a scary thing. I've never had any skin cancers metastasize, and that's where when it when it does, that's where it leads you down a path that can end up taking your life. So. That shocked me mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the surgery is to remove the lymph nodes as many as they can in that area. But there's some that are microscopic. So they never can guarantee that surgery gets it all. So they follow the surgery with radiation. And it's supposed to be 30 rounds of radiation. You go five days a week for six weeks. But I started that in March in 2019. And I only made it through 10 sessions because radiation on the throat is very hard to tolerate. It's such a active area. So um, I have recently had radiation on my arm. It's so much more tolerable. So at, you know, about the sixth treatment, it started to feel like at night my throat would close up and I feel like I couldn't breathe. I was mm-hmm. choking. I couldn't taste food. Right. Um, there's pain and, mm-hmm. and you think I'm only a third of the way through right. it's, it, this keeps building, you're burning your throat day after day. So I just, I said, this isn't something and I'm, I'm not even hundred percent sure. Do I need it? Like, did maybe I, maybe cause really they found two lymph nodes that were for sure had the cancer. Maybe those were the only two. So there was a part of me feeling like, what if I'm doing all this damage and I don't need it? but nobody will know, right? So I just made the decision that I wasn't willing to go through the, the other 20 sessions, and um, I'm lucky because I just had my CT scan in October, and I'm clear. So wow. I'm very fortunate that no kidding. gamble worked out for me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I'm... What would, your, um, what would the alternatives have been if you said, like, would they try to remove? them I don't know how that works so because they'd already done surgery there and they feel like they feel like from their eyes they got it all yeah 
anything they didn't get is microscopic. So it'll it'll only, radiation will just target it, Mm -hmm. hopefully blast it. Mm -hmm. But there's no, you know, you just have, it's a wait and see kind of thing. So even now they'll keep following me for a while to check it, but they're very happy that it looks clear. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, at this point we're pretty positive that it's gone. So that's really cool. (laughs) And I'm lucky. Yeah, I feel very lucky really with living with skin cancer and then this, um, what do they call it? Like a carcinoma in my lymph nodes and living with multiple myeloma. What is the prognosis with your arm? So I just finished radiation in, in February. Well, we are, no, Jan, January I finished. And where we're at with it is in March, I get, I see the oncologist and we'll measure it again. And ideally the radiation is supposed to shrink it and maybe stop it from growing. Mm-hmm. So what I feel like is it might be a little smaller. I do think it might be, but it's not dramatically different. Mm-hmm. So my oncologist that's treating me for multiple myeloma has, um, there's always new things coming up and there's a new drug for these tumors. And she said, again, it, there's nothing out there that has a huge success. I mm-hmm. mean, surgically removing them when they're small is the best but um, this new drug is I'm going to be going on it this week with my treatment that I'm already doing and so she said it's about a 20% chance that it can work so she says you'll know though in about a month Mm -hmm. so why not try it right it's Mm -hmm. yeah because I knew you were a bit excited about this Mm -hmm. new treatment so so where are you at right now what are what's happening for your treatments right now okay so with the multiple myeloma um That's another thing that happened is after that, um, the lymph nodes, the uh, the cancer had metastasized to the lymph nodes. That meant I had to go off of a drug that I was put on after the stem cell transplant and high-dose chemotherapy. There's a regimen to help you stay in remission. And it's a drug, you know, and that's why I say I, I believe we're moving forward to get even better drugs because this drug helps you stay in remission, but it also makes you susceptible to second cancers. So um, that's probably why this metastasized um, carcinoma happened. And because of that, they took me off the drug that was hopefully probably keeping me in remission. And then multiple myeloma was back. Mm -hmm. So I was in remission from 2016 to, let's say, January 19. Mm -hmm. And now multiple myeloma is back in my system. And so what's cool is there's a new drug. And so because, you know, you think, do I want to go through high-dose chemotherapy again? Right. You lose all your hair. It's yeah. it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really <laughs> that excited to, to do that again. And it is an option. I can do that treatment again. And even they were able to harvest enough of my stem cells. They're still frozen. So I could even have a second stem, stem cell transplant. And that treatment was successful. So that could work again. But mm-hmm. at second time, sometimes it's not as good as the first time so the fact is now instead of doing that we're going to do a treatment that involves one drug that they do from the past but then it's new drug um, and I'm going to tell you the name of it in case anybody out there is listening who has multiple myeloma it's called Dara Tuma Map. It's <laughs> these drugs have the weirdest names yeah so they're combining that with Valcade which 
isn't, I don't think, technically chemotherapy, but it's a drug that they put with chemotherapy, so it kind of has some of the same side effects. And so I've started that. I'm on day two today. I had my second treatment. And um, yesterday was a little tougher day. The first day, you react more to it, so I had the nausea and it just uh, didn't How is this administered? Oh, it's an infusion. Mm -hmm. So... um, you know, they put an IV in your arm. Mm-hmm. And this treatment, like chemotherapy can, is also, that's one thing I want to clarify is there's different kinds of yes. care, chemotherapy. So there's, you know, that four-month induction therapy I was on. Then there's high-dose chemotherapy. There's chemotherapy that you get with your breast cancer that's different than what mm-hmm. I had for the high-dose. So, um, so where I'm at right now is, you know, I've... I'm facing that second reoccurrence of multiple myeloma and where where I'm really optimistic right now is one this treatment's more tolerable than what I went through the first time. Okay. So I will be able to bounce back again quite well I think from it. Mm-hmm. But it will buy me more time. It's not a cure. So what's exciting is my oncologist says there's a trial drug right now. She says by the time, you know, whenever, we don't know how much time I'll get from this treatment. It'll probably put me in remission. That's the goal. But for how long, we don't know. But she said by the time multiple myeloma would reoccur again, the trial drug that they have, she's sure is going to be the cure, which we don't have a cure right now. So that is amazing. I'm excited about that. That is super exciting. Yeah. And I feel like after going through my first two days of treatment, um, you know, I can do it. Sometimes you think like, how hard is it going to be? How much pain? Mm -hmm. How much nausea, sleeplessness? There's all kinds of reactions to all the drugs that give you that you're sort of always balancing what's what's happening in your body that you that's the adverse thing and mm-hmm. then trying to placate that or placate that to make it tolerable so um, I'm really optimistic after two treatments like today was a great day it was a longer day but the the treatments get shorter and they're once a week now for eight weeks mm-hmm. so I feel like eight weeks isn't that long and then I think it'll be once a month after that and it's probably a little bit more like a maintenance and it's very to- like once a month that's not really a big deal so I'm like phew (laughs) I feel like I can get through this and Nicole I (laughs) admire so many things about you really and as I'm sitting here listening to you I'm hearing words like great optimistic I'm very positive this is exciting and I'm going do you have any idea how many people would completely shut down after (laughs) any of your bajillion diagnoses (laughs) right you know yeah. You but can, is that, I was just going to ask, you know, is, is that mentality a practice? Has it been something that has come and gone? Has it been something you've had to work towards? Because that's that state of mind, that frame of mind when you're constantly, you know, being dealt awful news, yeah. really. And I mean, like you said, you're able to pick out the optimistic parts of it. How do you maintain that? <laughs> well, as a child, when it all started, that's where I don't think I realized how accepting I was. And I felt like, and I, I never felt like, I always felt I was going to live through this. I, I never felt scared of dying when they told me what was happening. 
I don't know why. I just felt like, okay, what do we got to do? It's just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. And then life goes on. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, 11 years old and they say, we're going to do this. And at that time, I have to say, I wasn't making choices. My mom was making those choices. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't, I think in a way it was good for me that she was like, this is what you're doing. And I knew there was no whining or crying that was going to get me out of the, you know, having to go every three and six months and Mm -hmm. have needles that I didn't want and stitches and scars that I didn't want. But it felt like my normal. It just Mm -hmm. became my normal. And, you know, your closest friends and family, they know what you're going through. Most people, if you asked people I went to school with, they would not remember me as a girl that was sick at all. Because most of the incisions were covered by clothes and Mm -hmm. they're small and you just kind of keep going. So that part kind of happened just because of the way I was raised, I felt Mm -hmm. like. And I think at that time, too, I was in a a faith. I'm not in that religion now. But at that point in my life, I felt like I had really strong hope of a future after if we die, like that we would be resurrected. And I felt like I wasn't scared to die because I really believed in that hope. So that gave me a real sense of peace at the time. Mm -hmm. I wasn't afraid of it. I just... It felt inconvenient. I think that's really what it was to me. It was just an yeah, inconvenience. Yeah, more of like, oh, not again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then a few times, though, things will come up where something is deeper than you thought it was. Like there was some where they have to do a second incision and mm-hmm. certain places in your body are harder to deal with. So that, I think, was challenging then. But I think, I feel like that part of my life up until... I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. I completely accepted it and just felt like I just have to deal with this and then life will go on. Multiple myeloma th- like was very different because it was a terminal illness it, and it had a treatment that I wasn't f- on board with and it felt like just a it felt like a sentence of yeah there's a treatment but you're not going to we don't even know how much longer we'll keep you alive and I felt very just blown over like I didn't know how to really um, absorb that mm-hmm. and so I I think that's why it took me so long to just even agree to treatment I'm first sure. I first of all denied it and didn't get, yeah. get it diagnosed right yeah so I feel that but at that point in my life too because Chris and I have been together um, you know since I was about 33 so now my life changed so much being with Chris I have a history of a struggle with my own Mm self-worth, being confident and knowing my value. And so that more to me has overshadowed my life than than illness until Mm -hmm. multiple myeloma. And multiple myeloma was such a wake-up call because it felt like it had a timeline, like it's going to get you (laughs) kind of. So it made me really really think about what I want for like what what if I have two years to live what if I have one year you know you never at certain points you have different hopes of how long you're going to survive and then I felt like I have such ideals of especially after being with Chris and seeing what a healthy balanced whole person looks like that loves themselves with no question like he's a rock and I'm like I I, I, he's my role model and I feel like 
I really feel like more than ever, now my goal is to get my life really where I want it because, and it's weird because I'm more optimistic in a way that my life's going to go on a lot longer than anybody's ever thought. I'm still very optimistic about, but I feel like in a way, as human beings, we get so complacent. Even with skin cancer, I still felt like I'm going to live forever. Like, so there's a part of us that doesn't ever feel like we're truly going to die. So when you get something as big as a terminal illness in your face, it wakes you up to go, am I living my life the way I want? Like when I die, am I going to have huge regrets or am I going to feel like I lived how I wanted to live? Mm -hmm. And I really feel that's the key of I'm not afraid to die. I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid of it because... I've had the most epic love story in my life with Chris. Mm -hmm. I'm happy. Um, I still feel healthy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just maybe crazy, but I'm so grateful for what I have. I think that's why I feel so healthy is I see people who you know, they had their face burnt in a fire in a car accident. There's this woman I saw on Oprah years ago and she lives her, like she gets up every day and looks at that burnt, crisp, you know, thing that what used to be her beautiful face. And she lives her life with joy. And she, like, if you hear that interview, she's this amazing woman. And I just feel like sometimes those terrible things that happen to you, it's the wake up we need to really love our life and remember why we're here to begin with. And I really feel like the last year, especially going through this, because this has been such a a scarier thing, I think, than anything mm -hmm. I've been through. Mm -hmm. It's like, it really, you know, I know people, we all know these buzzwords, don't sweat the small stuff, live in the moment. But when you really, if you truly wake up and the first thing you think of is, I'm here, I'm alive. And then you look over and like, and there's my love of my life. And you start your day like that. You can't help but be a much more like joyful, loving, giving person. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel like I've made more progress in this last six months of feeling good about myself mm -hmm. and feeling like I know what I want. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful to be in treatment for multiple myeloma right now because I really feel more optimistic than I have felt, you know, in my whole life. I feel, I just feel really proud of our relationship and I'm just all the blessings I've had, you know. I mean, Chris's mom, we're here living in a house with his mom and that came out of a situation where when I was um, finally feeling the effects of the multiple myeloma and the clavicle broke and that I wasn't working, and then Chris got injured at work and he wasn't working, I mean, we went through our savings and we just hit a wall where we were like, we can't do this on our own. And Chris's mom is, you know, aging and it's not really good for her to be on her own anymore either. She's been living on her own so we've decided to live together and we moved from London to Leamington so that we could do that 
And I mean, just the gift that somebody helped us in a situation where we don't have to worry that we don't can't pay the rent this month mm-hmm. is like, what a gift. And she's so, you know, good to me and appreciates. We give, we all do things for each other. You know, she doesn't want to cook anymore. I'm the cook and she loves it. And I feel like that cooking's my hobby, my passion. So it's given me an outlet to mm-hmm. kind of take care of her but it's a way way I show love is to cook for people so yeah so and it's just we've had experiences like we would never have had if the illness wasn't there Mm -hmm. and just the the true appreciation of our relationship because we know we could lose it Mm -hmm. so it makes it more precious yeah when things get really difficult or when you're feeling those lows, do you have any personal practices that you have that help you maintain that mental health balance? I do. Um, one of the things that Chris has um, opened me up to is he's, well, for one, Chris is an avid, avid reader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, And I read uh, in my younger years quite a bit too, but I'm certainly not as big of a reader as he is. But when he finds books, he knows my personality and that he always shares them with me. So, I mean, one book I can think of, it's called Learning to Fall. I think it's Philip Simmons is, his, is okay. the author's name. And he has Luke, well, he's passed away now, but he, in the book, is chronicling his journal of living with Luke Gehrig's disease. And reading people's stories, it's such a motivational, inspiring story. And I say, like, the story I told you about the woman who was... A young girl in a car crash and stuck in the car when it was on fire and now her face is gone literally gone those stories always make me appreciate um there's always someone who has so much more to contend with than That's you right. yeah. and so you're not that bad off and we mm-hmm. all are facing something we all are mm-hmm. that's what light i've just realized could you really have joy and love if you never had the dark side that's right you know because then again we get so complacent Mm -hmm. you go on vacation and if you could go on vacation for two months would you start to feel like okay I've seen it you know like it's it's the newness of things it's the newness of a relationship that's right but there's ways to keep it alive every day and I feel like so the things I do are the reading I do and Chris and I are almost always kind of doing something online that's like a course and we did one um, called Life Book and it's amazing. You can get it through mindvalley.com and it takes you to look at your life through 12 categories and really it's all the main things that you want in your life and it helps you go through and look at What's working? What would I change? Why do I want to change it? Because if you don't have, like a lot of people are not happy with their weight, but if you don't know why you want to change it, why is it important, it's easy to just forget Mm -hmm. and you don't make the changes. So this course takes you through, you know, goal setting, but in a way where you analyze how you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. You You make yourself actually a whole book by the end of it and it's oh, your wow. book so we both have a life book and we review it all the time to remind us of the life that we really want mm-hmm. and so it keeps us always moving forward and and growing and that's really what I love about our relationship is it's never stagnant we're mm-hmm. always we're always changing and growing and I feel like we're becoming better 
I'm better. That's that mutual admiration for each other, right? Mm -hmm. And that just you inspire one another to do more and to have more and to be more. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Nicole, being able to pull such optimistic perspectives from the places that you've been, you obviously do have some bad days because as we've (laughs) discussed, you're a human. What are some aspects of you and your life and your perspectives that you could share that would help round out how you get through a bad day? Or I mean, you know, there's got to be times even in it that we all at times feel like no one would know what this is like, or I feel so lonely in this. And that is so legitimate. You feel so isolated. So, but in that way, it's also so healing to those around you. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. um, So some of the things that I think you go through that, you know, what people don't see, because I'll tell you, moving here, I've only been in Leamington since, well, over, just over three years. Mm -hmm. So it's wonderful that we have Chris's mom Mm -hmm. here for support, but I had imagined no friends living here while going through this treatment. So... I'm really happy to say I've made, you know, some new friends and what I've noticed is it's like people want, they know you're going through something. They, they don't know what to say or what to do and, and nobody can really, they tell you, you know, we're thinking of you. We hope you hope you're feeling well, but ultimately it's your journey and you are by yourself and Mm -hmm. you're, you're alone in it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the part that you can't, share or I don't share with maybe everyone is there's a part to it for me and again it can relate to probably the way I was brought up and what was valued is there's a vanity for me that's that's hard to deal with like losing all my hair was probably I feel like the worst part of any of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) which really it's not pain right but it looking at yourself completely bald you don't you're like who is this this isn't I feel like really attached to my hair too. I always had long hair for many years. So when it's, um, when you go through the high, high dose chemotherapy, if it comes out in different ways. So my hair started to come out kind of a ring around the front and the back. So I had like, looked like I'd buzzed off my hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had this weird hair in a circle on the top of my head and you know, and you also are hopeful because they say 1% don't lose their hair. So you're like, oh, let that be me. Yeah. But so I'm sitting in the hospital seeing this hair around the edges is all falling off. And then you get to a point where it just, you know, you pull a, a brush through and it just comes out. And I remember texting my friends while I was in the hospital because you can't really have visitors. You're in isolation except for your spouse. So they're saying like, how are you doing? And I said, today, if I walked outside the hospital, it's a windy day. I feel like I would look like a dad dandelion gone to seed and my hair would just blow right <laughs> off the Aww. what's left yeah. so I went and got it buzzed right. off after that because yeah. you just accept I'm losing my hair yeah but I have to say um going through that it makes you less attached to your physicality and you mm. realize I'm not my body and that was another part of the work I've done is reading these stories of people who've gone through tragedies where they, you know, been through a fire or an illness or lost an arm or a leg and, and realizing that's not you, Mm -hmm. you is who you are, your spirit. And you're realizing like when you see your husband can look at you and see you as the beauty because of 
you. It's not your hair that he cares about. And it's a really, again, you don't realize sometimes till you go through something hard how good it is for you. Because I can, I'm still a vain person in that, you know, I care about how I look and I'm growing my hair back. But I look at myself differently and I appreciate my appreciate myself differently because I'm also going through the, the worst part of the illness in the in the time of my life where you age the most so I'm dealing with you know my face is changing my skin is changing and all of it is is letting go letting go of something that you can't hold on to you can't hold on to your youth yeah. right you want to we all want to be young and mm. and our best but realizing what you can have and what's more important because I'll tell you when I was at my most probably want to say beautiful and young and glowing and you know my body right now is full of scars head to toe and so what the youngest part of my life when all that wasn't there I'm I'm I don't I wouldn't want to be that person any like I want to be the person I am now Mm -hmm. so I'll take the scars to be where I've grown to because being outwardly beautiful but not being loving myself and being confident inside doesn't feel beautiful. You don't really have it anyways. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I feel very valued, I feel loved, and I'm, like I say, in a place where, because I really had to work at self-love, where I feel like I'm loving myself so deeply right now. So it's so beautiful. I'm proud of that. You should be. <laughs> and I sometimes say, like how many scars I have from all the moles. You know, when you were a kid, you had to connect the dots coloring yeah, book. Yeah. So if you connect all my dots, you make a picture of me. <laughs> That's what I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nicole, this has been such an incredible chat with you. Thank you. I, I feel like I've taken so much away from, from our time together. Oh. And I know that the listeners have too. Thank you. I had a couple questions and I think I'm just going to leave it with one is if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? Well, for everyone, whether you're going through any kind of challenge, it's always the best is when you take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and, and honor yourself. So one thing I learned is, you know, going through these health challenges is speak your voice to these doctors because that's been the most gratifying part of the process is finding doctors who listen to me and Mm -hmm. respect my wishes. And as much as I took a huge risk in not treating my multiple myeloma, that doctor means the world to me that he let, he didn't pressure me or he didn't say, well, then I won't be treating you. He still followed me every month I saw him while I didn't do what he was telling me to do so those are the kind of doctors like if you don't have that don't accept less than that you deserve that if someone is pushy or not kind to you there's you know get a different doctor you don't or speak up and just say hey like this is what I'm choosing to do with my life my body mm-hmm. and um, so that's really important and there are there are, we have such I have to say we complain sometimes about our health system but like just today, the treatment I went through was covered by the government would be $1,000. The drug I was on was $5,000 a month. That was covered by the government. Like I would not be here if we didn't have the health care system we have. So mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for that. And just 
be your own advocate. Do re- it's very confusing, all the information about how to treat cancer. And even I'm still investigating natural things. So always grow and learn and try and just try things and see I, what I've found is what works for one person mm-hmm. doesn't mean it'll work for you, but you have to be your own, you know, try things and, and feel some things I, I won't do because I'm like, no, that's not for me. And you just have to feel good in your own decisions. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You are such a gift. <laughs> Thank you. You really are. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting with me. Well, I'm so happy my husband met you. I know, me too. And that's how connections happen. It is. I met Chris on a work conference when he worked at a hotel lobby or like the bar in the hotel in uh-huh. London. That's how we met. And so I really believe in those moments where you meet you meet the person at the right time at the right time divine in your timing. life yep, yeah divine timing it really feels like we were meant to meet for sure I can see it <laughs> I'm sitting here physically feeling this I see it and I feel it yeah well thank you thank you so much thank you and to all of my listeners again thank you so so much for sitting in and listening in on another episode of the safe haven podcast I appreciate you guys too more than I can articulate <laughs> Please promote this podcast so that we can continue chasing these incredible stories. Thank you, and I will talk to you next week.